Well, here we go. I've uh, been preparing for this for a while. I mean, just gathering my own thoughts and the thoughts of other people, um, what the Bible has to say about conflict management or crucial conversations. And uh, I mean, I have to tell you that I spent that time and finally got to sitting down to starting to craft this out and write it down. And I just kind of hit this wall um, because I'm just thinking, how do you even begin something like this? How do you just jump in to a conversation about this? And I mean, when you hit a wall like that, I did what probably most people do. This, you know, question popped up in my mind and it was just like, what would Mike Krauss do? And quite honestly, I actually thought that. Um, and that's probably more relevant to my context, but I'm sure you do it from time to time. Um, but actually what I did is I went online, sorry Mike, and I actually started watching through some of your messages um, from week to week just to see how you actually jump in and engage with something like this. And yeah, like I just find that not unlike the clip that we just watched, with Ray Romano um, just sitting there in the counselor's office, like just taking down the notes, like, yeah, yeah, that, that's good, I, I wanna know, okay. And can you slow down and say that like one word at a time and typing it into our phones? When we have these conversations that are so valuable and, and so much hangs on them, we actually wanna just get it right. We wanna know what to say, how to start, how to jump in. And before we even go anywhere today, I just wanna let you know that unfortunately, I'm not going to be giving you the step-by-step -step or the exact words to say, but I am hoping to open the door to your view on conflict, on confronting people, and that it's actually a worthy pursuit, that it's something that Jesus actually calls us to because he has such a high regard for relationships. Um, in the past month or so, um, our family ministry team actually went down to Atlanta for a family ministry conference um, called Orange. And it was Sophia Adama, our family ministry pastor, Brendan Nicholson, our children's pastor, and myself. And we head down there, and I had signed up for one of the breakouts called Leading Through Conflict. And I thought for sure, like, you know what? Like, this is an amazing topic. Everyone would be interested in this. I found myself in a room of, like, 50 people or so out of 7,000 that chose that breakout. And I'm starting to realize that maybe I'm a little bit weird in that respect, that I actually kind of enjoy this conversation and really draw into the idea of conflict and conflict resolution. Um, we've talked about this before um, in our Connected series specifically, that the way that we react to conflict and the way that we actually engage with it is something that we learn and probably not on our own. Um, we've learned it from the people around us. And those people are often our family members, the people we're closest to, the people that we're living with. And so we actually learn things that are maybe good habits and also some not so good habits as we dig into those tense situations. Um, my background, um, living in a family with a mom and a dad and three younger sisters, um, my parents were both middle children and it's kind of typical that middle children will actually kind of, kind of pull away from conflict, hoping to bring peace to everyone. Um, our family actually kind of adopted the model, probably not on purpose, of the slow fade. You know, when you have tension in a family and you kind of just push it to the side and hope that it just kind of, you know, over time fades away, even though you can't really help it, it like explodes somewhere else over something else. Um, that might not be your personal experience, but maybe 
you're the family that, you know what, like you're just like kumbaya, everyone just comes in together, your opinions are heard and shared and everyone just feels valued and feelings are expressed and you reach these amazing conclusions. Maybe that's you and if it is, that's awesome. Um, I'm assuming if it is even so that that's not all the time. Um, but maybe your situation is a little bit more like this. Maybe your family is more like, I don't know, um, you throw your red sock into the white wash load by accident and in five minutes it ends up being this huge debacle with your whole family and it just like spins out of control about like responsibility and your life direction and just goes in nuts. Um, maybe that's you. But regardless of wherever we are at in the way that we deal with conflict, we gotta admit that it's everywhere. We all have tendencies, we all have things that we just are drawn to and reactions that we can't even sometimes help. And um, Jeannie Stevens, the one that was leading that breakout that I was in in Atlanta, she actually does a talk on conflict management every single year with her church because she actually believes that it is that foundational to relationships in the church, but even more so in our families. We're in week three of our family ministry series, and I think one of the major things that actually brings families closer together more than anything is tension. It might be hard to believe, but we're going to dig into a bit of that today. And so one of the things that Jeannie Stevens does is she actually walks through some of these stages that honestly, just in our fallen nature and the way that we just in interact with each other, we will tend towards and realistically, it's so simple. Conflict simply starts with an unmet desire, an expectation that is just missed. Maybe it's that you just wanted to be respected as a person. It could be something as noble as that. Someone comes in the room and just totally misses that mark. And you feel something. You feel disrespected. You feel there's tension immediately in the room. Maybe it's something like, you know what, you really wanted your clothes to be white and someone threw that sock in there and it can be something as simple as that. But often it's just that tension that comes immediately when your expectation is unmet. Very quickly, our brains do this little assessment. We do this thing where we actually look at that and wonder if our feelings are actually legitimate. Should I be feeling this way? Should I actually feel disappointed? Should I feel like that conflict was actually something that I should address, and we go right into this demand stage. And we assess whether or not that desire of ours was actually a need or a demand. In some cases, in, if you were wanting to be respected as a person, for example, um, that is something that you actually require as a person, as a human being. You're like, I did actually want to be respected in that moment, and I'm feeling something about that. Um, in other cases, and a lot of cases, we actually have really trite little things that are just our own personal desires, maybe even selfish things, um, that we impose then on that person thinking, I deserved that. I should have been treated this way, treated this way, or I should have received this. And from that moment, that internal dialogue starts to play itself out. And it goes into this next stage called discrimination. And you probably are thinking, whoa, like discrimination, that is a really harsh word. But actually, it's um, just talking to other people, forming a little team over here, 
You start talking about the situation. Can you believe that that happened? Can you believe that they treated me this way? Does this happen? Is this something that they often do? And you start building this sort of team over here to help build your case. And I can tell you right now that I've done this. I think we can all admit that our first step outwardly is often to talk about it with other people. Um, I have a story that I'm not really the most proud of, I guess, um, when it comes to this. And that actually goes back for me to grade seven, where there was a girl in my class where she would actually just poke fun about, at people about um, their looks or whatever, in particular towards me, maybe towards my like, body image and that kind of thing. And little did she know, um, that was actually one of the core insecurities in me. And after a while, I just was sick of it, and I was going to deal with it. So I decided that I was going to write a letter. Um, you're probably thinking, that's a great idea, like write a letter. And in some cases, it's a really great idea, except in my case, I definitely wrote my feelings out in this letter, but I also gave her a little piece of my mind or a taste of her own medicine. And I may have taken the liberty of passing it around to every other girl in the class and have them sign it before I gave it to her. Yeah. Oh, I had made my team. I had made my team and I wanted to win this thing. I didn't want any chance of losing at all. And I don't know about you, but I don't think many of you have ever moved to that stage of talking to it with other people or writing a letter that way, but we definitely like to build our own team. Very quickly from that stage, I moved into the fourth stage, which is discipline. I actually gave her the letter. I decided what she deserved. I decided that you, you treated me this way, you actually deserve to be alienated from your friends. You actually deserve to be seen in this light. You actually deserve to be shamed. From the place that I was sitting, I decided arbitrarily what her punishment was for her actions. A place that is in no way my right. And you may not have necessarily handed a letter that you've had everyone sign to somebody before. But we all do this. We freeze people out. We stop answering their texts, their emails. We stop looking them in the eyes or interacting with them, giving them the critical information that they need. We stop drawing close to them. We freeze them out of relationships. We punish them by distancing ourselves or maybe even punish outwardly by acting it out in ways that are just not even appropriate. We can move so quickly down this line and once a relationship gets to that discipline area and starts living there, unfortunately it slides into the fifth and final stage which is death. Relationships cannot live in a place where somebody is actually taking that power and asserting it on somebody and constantly disciplining. It just moves into death or complete separation. You may be around that person, but you are definitely not engaging with them in a relationship that's healthy. In my case, in this particular story, I was lucky enough or fortunate enough that uh, my friend actually came and um, confronted me about my actions and actually apologized for her actions in the first place. And let me tell you, I felt like a prize idiot. <laughs> 
here she was saying things that probably weren't even intentional, and I had just blasted her. Um, I definitely took that opportunity to also beg her forgiveness, and our relationship didn't fully mend. I mean, it was better than it was in that totally blown apart stage, but we were actually able to move forward. We were actually able to engage with each other again instead of allowing things to completely end. And so as I've been sort of walking through these stages from desire to demand to discrimination to discipline and finally to death, you've probably been doing some of your own thinking and a couple of relationships in your life have probably come to mind. And so in this moment, I just want to give you some time to reflect on that and to actually start to pray into what God would have you see and say or maybe do as a result of this conversation today. So right now, I'm just going to give you some time to frame that relationship, pick one, and then even just diagnose where you think you're at in that relationship. So yeah, just... Take some time right now to think about that. God, we just want to welcome you into this place. We invite you into these conversations into these relationships, into our families, the people we're close to, and into our own hearts and lives. God, we mess this up so often, and today we just seek your wisdom. We seek your guidance. We wanna know what you have to say on this matter. And God, right now we just lay these relationships before you and also open our hearts to what you have to say. God, thank you for the way that you work with us so closely. We invite you in to do your work today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So basically my hope for today, again, is not necessarily that I give you the exact, exact things to say, but that you'd actually begin to see relationships the way that God does as so, so valuable that tension is actually something that's worth pursuing. And we're gonna start by saying this, that conflict actually isn't bad. Um, we would like to believe in our society and the way that we live that actually when, as soon as you feel something uncomfortable or tense, um, that it's a bad thing, that you need to solve it right away or dismiss it or hide it or something. None of those things are true. Conflict and tension is actually important for relationships to operate in a healthy way. Um, let me set it up this way. Maybe you've been in a relationship before with a person who is completely apathetic. Maybe you've been there where they just kind of let go of everything and they just don't even care. Trying to engage with a person like that and trying to move forward is almost impossible. Tension is so necessary. They are holding all the power over there and they're unwilling to let go. On the other side of things, um, you may be in a relationship with somebody who is just constantly making tension happen. They are just constantly at war with you. They're firing things. Every single thing you do turns into a huge argument, heated argument. 
And it's just impossible to make any ground. And tension, again, when it's that extreme, is so unhealthy. However, in the middle ground, tension is something that we actually need. Believe it or not, when you have person A and person B in a, re in a room, you are going to have different opinions. That's going to happen. And part of what needs to happen in our just thinking from the very beginning is seeing conflict as opportunity and a place to move relationships forward. Jesus actually has a lot to say about this particular topic. Um, in some cases, he'll give us parables and things that we need to really mine out and discuss what the actual theme and story underneath is. And sometimes Jesus is really direct about certain things. And conflict is actually one of them. He takes this thing head on in Matthew 18. And we're just going to start by looking at verse 15. It says, and I'm just going to pick up my Bible here. I don't have a fancy iPad like Mike, but we'll, you know, kill the trees for now. Um, but let's just read this together. If a fellow believer hurts you, go find a subgroup of people and, no, it actually says, if a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell them. Work it out just between the two of you. If they listen, you've made a friend. Right here, right off the bat, this is where things can go from bad to worse that we immediately want and attend to go to other people to build our case. And sometimes we feel like it's even a noble thing to do. Sometimes we're like, we're going over there and we're thinking like, hey, is this something they often do? Is this something we should be um, addressing with them as a group? Or you bring it to another group saying like, uh, do I actually have grounds for feeling the way that I feel and that kind of thing? But I'm going to tell you right now, the person that could probably settle that argument for you the best is actually the person that hurt you in the first place. They probably have a pretty good idea whether you have grounds for the feelings that you have. The problem is, it's scary. Talking to people and confronting the person that has hurt you is one of the hardest things you can do. We're afraid because we can never control what they're going to do, how they're going to react, and no matter what you do, that'll never be a reality. You can never control someone else's reaction. But what we can do is we can set the stage and we can do it well. We can make a space that is so safe that we're bringing our own humility into it and hopefully and prayerfully bringing the other person to a place where they can be open and honest with you as well. Humility is so key that we are actually entering a conversation because it's a conversation. We're not telling, we're actually willing to have our side potentially be proven wrong. And so in setting that scene, just remember to go into that with just complete prayer and humility that your side may be proven wrong by what they say. One of the things that you can do to build a safe space is actually just starting with the facts the things that are actually indisputable, the things that actually happened. Welcome them into the conflict. Say, hey, um, remember yesterday at lunch when this happened? The things that they can actually start to relate to and bring themselves back into that moment. And then set the stage with your feelings. Say, you know what, I started to feel this or I felt like I was rejected or I felt ignored, whatever it is. And the third thing is so critical, then ask. Ask them if that's true. Is that what was happening there? Is that actually how that went? 
And chances are they will be able to clear that up for you so quickly. In some cases, they'll actually just be able to say, you know what? I didn't realize that I rolled my eyes. I didn't realize that I turned my back. I didn't realize that I slammed the door or treated you that way. I was having a bad day or something else came up and I wasn't really paying attention. And, t and the tension can just dissolve so quickly. On the other side, um, things can actually be more complicated than that. And sometimes they will actually answer you and say, yeah, there is something that we need to talk about and I've been meaning to talk to you for some time. And you have just opened the door to a conversation that is so valuable and has so much potential for God's work and healing. Jesus is so direct about this because of the potential that lies right there in that conversation. And I could stay here and talk about this for a long period of time, but I want to actually move on to the next part of this because if you really want to dig into that and dig into how you can set the stage for a conversation like that, Joseph Grenny actually does a really great job framing that by writing this book called Crucial Conversations. He does an amazing job setting the stage for those kind of conversations and I highly recommend that you go pick up that book if you're wanting to lean into that more. But we're going to continue on because there's more to dig into. Um, Jesus continues that if they won't listen... Take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. Chances are, and I hate to tell you this, um, if you're having this conversation and it doesn't go well the first time, someone's facts are probably off and they could very well be yours. Something happens when we stew on something for a while. Our feelings and the things, the dialogue that goes on in our head, um, the feelings that we had sometimes turn into facts to us when they actually weren't. And bringing other people into this conversation and being really intentional about who those people are can really bring clarity to it. People that, are, like it says, are going to keep the conversation honest. Um, it's about actually welcoming people that you trust, but also ones that are discerning and are going to be able to tell you whether the things that you're feeling have turned into the fact or not. And just being open with that conversation, again, humility is so key. Bringing humility into that conversation it's not about bringing in your A-team over here who you've prepped for that conversation, but again, discerning who those people are gonna be. And then Jesus continues on. He says this, if they still won't listen, tell the church, if they won't listen to the church, you will have to start over from scratch. Confront them with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Now, I'm not gonna spend much time on this one, and I'm not really going to address the circumstances that actually make you bring it to that level, to the whole church level or a whole family intervention level, as situations are just too diverse to actually pre um, prescribe that. Definitely seek wisdom on those things. But what I do want to say is if you're looking for step three as, you know, the out, check it off the box and actually move on to something else, um, Jesus doesn't exactly say that. I know there's some translations, some of you may have read this before, where it says, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. But I really like the way that it's translated here um, because prior to this whole conversation in Matthew 18, Jesus actually talks about the story where there's a hundred sheep and one goes off and the shepherd actually goes and pursues that sheep and keeps on bringing them back. Just like in this passage, it says, go out to them and pull them back again. Offer them God's forgiving love. And in this case, um, it's really hard. 
I'm not saying that it's easy, but what Jesus is saying is that love never leaves the equation. I mean, I wanna pause here for a moment and say that there are definitely situations that are dangerous. There are definitely situations that will put you at risk, whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually. And again, the counsel of friends will be so important here. Friends and people that you trust to make sure you're not putting yourself at risk. But most, in most cases, you can love somebody at very least from afar, if not continually seeking them in, in relationship and bringing them back. And this is Jesus' heart. And he really um, pushes into this in this next little bit. He says right off the bat, take this most seriously. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven. A no on earth is a no in heaven. What you say to one another is eternal. I mean this. When two of you get together on anything at all on earth and make a prayer of it, my Father in heaven goes into action. And when two or three of you are together because of me, you can be sure that I will be there. God places this amazing power into our hands. He actually tells us again and again that a yes on earth is a yes. And the things that we say to one another have eternal value that they actually have lasting effect. And even greater than that, he actually says that when we go together and come to a point of agreement, in some translations it says, it will be done. Or in this case it says, the Father goes to action. This is probably one of the remark most remarkable promises we could hear. That in situations of turmoil and conflict, that if we can get to a place where we're with this person and we can agree that we want healing and restoration for that relationship, the promise of God is that it will be done. He will go to action for you on your behalf. And it is this amazing opportunity that we have in the midst of conflict to actually move relationships forward. And actually, when you actually take the time to meet with somebody at this level because of something that's happened, you wouldn't believe the trust that is built in those situations. And sometimes it even means doing it again and again and again. It's not easy. And you're probably wondering, and Peter actually speaks up for us in this case, how many times do we have to do this? When does this end? Does this ever end? How does this happen? And at this point, Peter actually gets up the nerve to ask, Master, how many times do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? Jesus replied, seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. Um, I kind of have some experience with this particular quote. Um, as a child, I would actually um, go to my parents and just really like lay it on thick, just the, oh, they keep on doing it again and again. I do that really well. This is kind of like the tease and grunt and groan. Our, my niece Brandy is picking this up really well, the, um, but when things are just so brutally hard that my sister keeps bugging me again and again or whatever it is, I would ask my parents, how many times do I have to do this? And they would actually direct me to this passage and they'd say 70 times seven. And I was the kid that had the tally sheet going in their room to 490, hoping that someday, you know, you get to that point and you'd be like, all right, done, check it off and forgiveness is over for you. Um, but I really don't think that's what Jesus is saying in this case. 
he's bringing us back to it again and again and again. Conflict, honestly, is just plain hard. And after deciding together that conflict is not only bad, is not bad, it's actually moving us forward. The second thing I want to say is it's hard because conflict exposes us. We don't like to be exposed. <laughs> Exposure is not something that's comfortable. We have things in our lives that are hidden and deep and dark, and we do not want people to see those things. And I definitely have some personal experience in that area as well. That girl in grade seven who was poking fun at my appearance or whatever um, was actually getting at something that was pretty core and pretty insecure deep, deep, deep within me. Um, you've probably experienced this before too. Have you ever just made a comment to somebody and it's just maybe even a minor thing and you just get blasted? Um, people protect the things that are really deep inside and they don't want people to see. And in this particular case, and I didn't even realize it until more recently, that she was actually hitting on a nerve deep inside of me. And I didn't even realize it, like I said, until probably about five years ago. But five years ago, I was at Columbia Bible College. I was finishing, or actually not finishing, I was in my second year of my uh, worship arts degree. And at that point, I found myself, um, due to some stresses and just deep insecurities in me, struggling with bulimia for about a year and a half at that point. And I walked into my room, um, and my roommate Jenny was sitting there. And over some time, she had started to notice some of my habits and some of the things that I was doing. And she was struggling. She was not knowing whether it was true and didn't want to believe it, didn't know how to bring it up, didn't know what to do about it. And I remember that day so clearly because I walked into the room and she just sat there and she said, hey, um, so I've been noticing some things about you. Started to list off some of the habits that she'd been starting to notice and started into how she was feeling about it, saying like, I've been feeling super uncomfortable. Um, I don't really know what to do about it. I didn't know if I should bring it up. But landed the conversation here by saying, what are we going to do about this? And I can tell you, in that moment, my heart literally fell on the floor. Um, I probably wasn't naive to think that people hadn't noticed, but I, from the con context that I grew up in, I sure didn't expect someone to call me out on it. And in that moment, that grade seven self that was still in there, I just wanted to leap out of my body and just rip her face off, to be honest. Um, both that and I had about five really good excuses that came to mind in a heartbeat to cover it up and rehide it and dig it way down inside of me again. But I have to tell you that Jenny, the role that she played in my life, while I was away at school, she was my family. She was one of the closest relationships I had. The investment she had made in me and I and her, the depth that we had gone together, just undergirded all of those things and overrode all of my reactions. And I actually got to, be a place, got to a place where I could ask for help. I told her, I need your help. I need your accountability to get through this. I can't do this on my own. And I cannot begin to tell you 
the healing that came when her and I came to a place where we could agree that we needed to move forward, that we wanted healing in that and we wanted our relationship and the things in my life to be restored. God also says this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. I cannot begin to tell you how that deep, dark thing in my life became a light, not only for me, but for people that I was close to and in the community that I was in at CBC. And I have to lay out before you that you also have just these amazing opportunities for God to turn these dark places of your life into opportunities to shine light, not only in your life, but into others. He says it this way in Hosea, that he actually turns the valley of Achor, which just means trouble or struggle, into a door of hope. There is so much opportunity for hope. And in my particular case, it meant a lot of opening up. It meant sharing that with people. That was so scary. But it also meant drawing close to the people that were around me. And the relationships grew so, so close and um, formational in my life. And I, I honestly have never been the same since. The ugly and just the hidden and the parts of your life that you do not want anyone to see, those things that are deep inside of you, I can guarantee you that God has no intention of the enemy having a monopoly on that area of your life. Instead of that, he actually wants to shine his light on it and proclaim his victory over death in that area of your life. It takes courage, it takes relationship, it takes those people that are close to you, but it is so worth it. And so as we close, I just want to invite the band actually back up at this point. And I just want to walk you through an exercise as we close. I want to challenge you to think of a relationship where we need to talk. <laughs> And maybe it's on your account. Maybe it's the way you already know you have hurt another person. Maybe it's how someone else has deeply wounded you. You can also start that conversation. Maybe it's because you've both been firing away at each other for so long. You don't even know where to begin. But I just want to give you some time right now to pray into that and just ask God to give you the next steps. What to do next, what to approach, how to bring your humble self into that conversation and how he wants to work. So I'm just gonna give you some time to pray into that right now.
And now it starts with you. With this prayer and self-examination, I encourage you, dig deep. Dig deep down to the motivations behind it all. What do you really want for this relationship? Dig below even the superficial things like wanting to be right or wanting things to be the way that you wanted them to be in the first place and dig down even below that to see how you actually desire what God desires, that whole and complete relationships would be restored. And so I'm just gonna pray for us now as we ask God to work in these things. God, thank you so much that you're relational with us, that you draw close, that you see the deep, dark parts of us, and you actually desire those things to be brought into the light, that you actually have a plan for those things too. God, give us courage as we go into this week to take the things in our lives, the relationships, the conflict, the people seriously, as you've called us to in your word. Because we can be confident, God, in the action that you desire to happen. God, we trust you with this. We lay this before you. And we ask in your son's precious name. Amen.